I'm Patricia Pierce. Welcome to the We Awakening podcast. Beneath the global crises we are facing, something truly extraordinary is happening on Earth. Planetary consciousness is shifting as humankind sheds its belief in separateness and awakens to the truth of interexistence. In this podcast, we explore this awakening into unitive consciousness that will give rise to a new world, and we celebrate the luminous web that connects us all. Hello, beautiful souls. Today I'm sharing a conversation I had with acclaimed peace builder, educator, and trainer, Dr. Paula Green. For decades, Paula crisscrossed the globe to foster conflict transformation across cultures. In 2009, in recognition of her international work for peace, the Dalai Lama bestowed upon her his Unsung Hero of Compassion Award. She served on the National Council of Fellowship of Reconciliation and the Steering Committee of the International Network of Engaged Buddhists. And in 1994, she founded the Karuna Center for Peacebuilding in Amherst, Massachusetts, an organization with international outreach dedicated to bridging deep divides, transforming violent conflict, and fostering reconciliation. Deeply concerned about the growing polarization in the U.S. following the 2016 presidential election, she helped birth Hands Across the Hills, an initiative to deepen the connection of common humanity between polarized groups. This endeavor received national media attention, including the New York Times, NPR, and CBS. In Paula's words, it has been my mission to encourage those separated by war, enmity, prejudices, or perceived differences to seek understanding, discover common ground, learn new skills, and increase their capacity to promote peaceful societies for the benefit of all. Paula died on February 21st. I am rebroadcasting this interview from 2018 in honor of Paula's life and legacy and to help us all be inspired by her compassion and unwavering commitment to a world of peace. Thank you, Paula, so much for being with us today. I've, I've really been looking forward to our conversation. And to get us off, I wonder if you could share with us what led you to the work of peace building? Well, I'm a product of the 1960s counterculture, and we had a great deal of confidence and hope in those days that we could have a political and cultural turning, I think, away from violence and toward greater equality. And that was represented for me by the twin movements of civil rights and anti-war. And I think that launched me into what became a lifetime of advocacy and passion for both social justice and peace building. And of course, those two were linked. And I, I kind of had two tracks in my life. One was a social justice and peace activism track. And the other was a, an, an urgent need to understand myself and human behavior generally through both psychological and spiritual lenses. And putting all that together got me to peace building. Okay, and you've been doing this for for quite a while. Uh, you've been working and your center has worked in over 30 countries, as I understand it, uh, places right. where there's been a considerable conflict. 
I've noticed that in your work, you often talk about conflict transformation rather than conflict resolution or conflict management. So can you tell us more about how how you approach conflict, your your perspective on conflict as an opportunity for transformation? Yes, I'd be happy to talk about that. I think that comes out of um, two strong threads in my own development. One is I've got a doctorate in counseling psychology and applied behavioral studies. So I'm very interested in the human potential for change individually and in communities. And I've also been practicing, studying and practicing Buddhism for 30 or 40 years. And that gives me another lens into how people change and what's possible in the human condition. And I think for both of those because of both of those threads, I much prefer the word transformation to resolution. Resolution sounds a little bit like hammer and nails to me, you know, kind of bang the nail in, in and you're, you're done. And manage, management sounds um, very in, impersonal. And my work is quite personal. And what I'm aiming for, both in the international work that I have done for the past 40 years and more recently now, when there's bridging divides within the United States, it's for people to really transform their attitudes and behaviors. So I'm interested in digging deeply, and that's why I use the word transformation. Can you give us maybe an example or two of, of places where you've worked where you really have seen that kind of transformation occur? Well, it's, it's remarkable, Patricia. It happens just about everywhere. One of the things I've learned is that after armed conflict, wonderful people rise up, sometimes literally out of the ashes, in, its, in an attempt to create peaceful conditions for the future and to reach out across the dividing lines to those who cause them harm in many cases. And there's a kind of readiness in the people who step forward. And some of them said to me early on, I could never sit in a room with somebody from the other side. I could never talk to that person. I could certainly never be in connection with that person. And then they get together and begin to meet the other side, discover the humanity of the other, reduce their stereotypes, and uh, commit to working together. And it's, it's a remarkable process, and I've seen it this past year within the United States, which I'll talk about a little later. I could cite examples from almost all the countries that I've worked in. Rwanda is one where people were shattered by a 100-day war that killed a million people, which means it was a tremendous amount of murder and mayhem in a very short time. It was a tribal conflict. These are people of the same religion, um, but different tribal backgrounds, and they were incited, as people tend to be, by various kinds of warlords for their own gain. And they now, it was 1994, so it's a long time ago, and they are still working on rebuilding their relationships and learning to trust each other. And they've come many more miles than they or anyone else expected. That's one very strong example. Um, I worked in Bosnia. That war also happened in 1992 to 1995 in that same era. And there I worked with educators and women's groups. And in both cases, they said, we don't want to talk to the other. And then finally, they said, we have to talk to the other. We can't continue to live with such divisions. And then the relationships begin, and some of them now work in organizations together. So transformation does happen. 
And in situations like that, do you find where there has been such a deep divide and hostility and mistrust, do you find that someone coming from the outside can serve as sort of a catalyst for that to begin to shift? Do you think that that it's essential for, for someone else to come in and help build that bridge when it seems like maybe they, they've, they're beyond the point of being able to do it themselves? Well, I would say that's probably been my greatest usefulness is being an outsider in these international conflicts and not coming in with the story from one side or the other embedded in my psyche from a lifetime of living in the community. And it seems helpful to people. I don't believe that um, impartial or neutral is a very good way to describe human beings because I don't think that's even humanly possible. So what I like to say instead is being multi-partial, which means I'm partial to both sides. I care about both sides. I want to respect the story of all the people in the drama. And I think when people feel that, they come to trust me. And in some ways, that trusting me becomes a bridge to the other side. You're gaining their trust because they they understand that you that you value them that you've heard their truth. That's right. And and you're not you're you're not choosing sides, but neither are you, um, at, like you say, maintaining a neutral stance that seems to be kind of like an uncaring stance or a disengaged stance. Yes, and also a stance that ignores the reality of the harm that was done. You know, that that disengagement doesn't allow for recognizing that. There was a war. People have been destroyed. Lives have been lost. Futures have been put into great disarray. And and I'm willing to acknowledge all of that, but not with a sense of somebody is wrong. This is this is how it unfolded. This is what happens. And and trust and trust does build people and people do really change their relationships to each other. It astounds them because they don't think it's possible. And I suspect just having their story heard moves them quite a bit along the road to to transformation. I think I think one of the biggest factors in all of this work Patricia is that people want to be seen, heard, acknowledged and validated for who they are and what they've been through. And I think and I've said this a, a lot to people that I get a lot of my points for just showing up because I show up in very difficult circumstances after a war when when lives and communities are ravaged and devastated. And there I am, this strange American walking into the scene. And and just the courage to be there is very validating for people and meaningful. So how is it that you actually uh, make those contacts so that you can come into a community? How does that happen? Well, that's that's kind of a mysterious process. But it does unfold. Uh, in some cases, people have heard about Karuna Center for Peace Building or heard about me or because of my teaching international students, um, people have um, met me and want me to come to a certain country. And then there's a kind of underground grapevine where stories spread about what people were doing in one country and people in other countries hear about it and they want it. One of my first my first big international projects was Bosnia. And I um, worked at a um, event at the Auschwitz concentration camp at the end of 1994. It was still the middle of the Bosnian War, which ended in 95. And there was a videographer there, a New Yorker, who was filming this event. It was a healing event for a couple of hundred people. And she went from there to Bosnia. 
And she told the Bosnians what she had just seen happen at Auschwitz. And the next thing I know, I got a call from a Bosnian woman. So in, these are the kinds of ways in which these, these projects unfold. And then we worked in Macedonia, which is near Bosnia, because one country heard what the other country was doing, and they wanted the same thing. So there's a way in which the work itself has its own power and, and gets, finds its way, <laughs> finds yes. its way to where it's needed. I would, I would say that's true. And, and now, you know, I've been doing this for, for overseas for 25 years or so, and now the next generation is taking over. People that I've trained are running organizations and doing the same things that I did. And that's so sweet for me. Yes. Because it means the work has a future. Absolutely. Absolutely. So over the 25 years that you've been working in, in various places um, around, con uh, around conflict, have you noticed any significant changes in the global landscape and how and how the human population is dealing with conflict? Well, I, I think I could say it gets better and worse all at the same time. Yeah, I, I, I truly there are ways in which we're in such a crisis now and things are much worse and much more dangerous. There are also places where there is much more peace and much less tendency to go to war again. And I, I think this all happens simultaneously. We have terrible tragedies we're living with in dozens of countries around the world in terms of armed conflict and injustice and oppression and poverty. And then we have other countries where they seem to be moving in a different direction, a more peaceful direction. It's a big, it's a big world, so it's, it's all happening at the same time. Yes. And I, I wish I could say there's a definite trajectory toward peace, but people who, who do these things, there's, there are... Um, people who study institutes that measure all of this, that track the amount of peacefulness and war making going on in, in the world. And it's a jagged line. It moves up and down. It's not it's not a steady projection. As Martin Luther King said, the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice, but it's a long, slow bend. Yeah, yes, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> so um, so in in your work, what have been some of the key learnings about peace building? That, that you've acquired along the way? Well, I want to start first with resilience. Resilience is an awesome factor in human life and then recovery from the, some of the world's most challenging circumstances. And resilience exists everywhere, is spread throughout the population and exists in both communities that committed violence and communities that were violated. So it, come, it comes up everywhere and it's extraordinary. It feels um, like these are the people who begin the repair and rebuilding of the shattering. And I'm always astounded, respectful, and sometimes overcome by their capacity to keep on giving and caring in the midst of so much destruction and loss. But if they didn't exist, there wouldn't be any repair at all. So they're wonderful stars. So I would say that for me has been a, a great learning. And I've seen it in cultures that are as different as Africa, Asia, the Mideast, and Eastern Europe, which have all been part of my beat over these decades. And it seems to me that resilience, think, I'm, I'm thinking about your background, both as a peace builder and a psychologist. Uh -huh. And that resilience is, um, it's an inner dynamic. And like you, I'm, I'm sometimes astonished at what people can live through and mm -hmm. continue continue keeping their eyes on the prize and um, and keeping moving forward 
And do you find just I guess now I'm asking a question about your experience as a psychologist. Do you see that resilience is something that we can cultivate inside of ourselves or it's or is it something that we either have or we don't have? I would say both both of the above. Um, I, I would say some people may, because of their life circumstances, be more amply endowed with that capacity. But I've also seen families where um, one of the adults in the family is very resilient and one of the adults in the family has a very hard time recovering. So it's not necessarily just learned behavior. I mean, there's a, a great deal of learned behavior. And I think it's absolutely something we can tell, we can cultivate uh, because it's part of learning about our own tolerance for difference and our own um, resolution to to rise up and not be caught in the in the grief and the anger for our entire lives. I think one of the things that's really really important here is how people deal with their anger. Does that anger get transformed? And I learned a lesson from a wonderful colleague in Rwanda who had lost 35 family members. Rwandan families were large in those days, and and he was broken and he was angry, and he felt like the way he described it is that his he was walking around with a closed fist, that his mind was a closed fist, that it could never open. And at some point he realized he could never recover that way, and he could never love that way, and that his children would carry the anger that he was he was having about his, in his being. And so he made a shift to open up that fist, that fist in the mind, that fist in the body, in order to be able to love. And today he's a profound healer. And that, that speaks to so much about doing our own work so that we're not inflicting our unresolved um, suffering to the next generation. Yes. And I'm wondering, your so your experience uh, with Buddhism, I'm presuming that that factors quite a lot into the work that you do. Enormously. Yeah. Can you share more about that, how, how that provides you a foundation or maybe a framework for what you do? Well, there's so many things to say. The first one I want to say is that there's a kind of groundedness and calmness that I carry with me in some very difficult situations. There were times when I brought people into a room together into a circle for the first time from opposing sides of a conflict. And I think to myself, I have no idea what's going to happen here. Are these people going to sit down and have a real conversation? Or are these people going to walk out on each other, yell at each other? There are just ways in which I don't know. And I take some deep breaths and ground myself and make myself ready to be able to hold in my heart whatever is going to emerge. So there's a, a groundedness that comes from meditation practice that seems very solid to me. That, and that goes with me everywhere. And people notice that about me, and they will say, you're not afraid of silence. Because when people speak in circles, there's often a tendency to speak right away after that and to count, counteract and contradict. And, and I'll just say to people, take a breath, slow down, let's have a little silence, hear what was just said and then respond from a greater depth. And that's comforting to people. They feel held by that. And that has also come out of practice. And then I want to talk about a couple of concepts that are really important. Um, two that I want to mention for now, interdependence and impermanence. Um, one of the things that Buddhism teaches that, is that all of life is ephemeral, and everything, everything changes and everything passes away. And there is no permanence. And I hold that 
when I'm going into situations where there's war or has recently been war, reminding myself someday there will be peace here, you know, and reminding people that what they're feeling now will be different in five or 10 years. They won't be having, feeling the same thing. They won't be living in the same circumstances. And that's actually generally true for people. But when we're, when we're afraid and when we're shut down, we think it's never going to change. When we're in pain or grief, we think it's never going to change. And it's another, it's another kind of thought about the outbreath. You, you take the outbreath, things do change. Your life will move on. It will feel different in the future. So holding that impermanence is very helpful to me because people that I meet are in very frozen situations. Both the political situation and their psychological situation are both very frozen. And being able to help people remember that change is happening at every moment and will happen in their lives and they will smile again and the sun will shine again and the community will rebuild itself again. That really matters. And the other one is interdependence, which is a lovely concept about everything is related to everything else. And one can learn about this, not just through Buddhism, it just happens to be the way that I, I grappled with these issues was through a lot of Buddhist teaching. And the, the causes and consequences of war are related to each other. And what's happening now is related to what's going to happen in the future. And no person and no event is separate and isolated, that we're, we're all a product of our times, our circumstances, and our relationships. Which goes counter so much to our to our culture, where there's so much focus on individualism, as though mm-hmm. any of us, as though any yeah. of us existed as separate beings. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So what I'm hearing you say is that that you are you're able to be present in the midst of of uncertainty. You are able to understand that nothing is static. So yes, there was a war, but that story is going to change. It always changes. One of the things, as I'm hearing you speak, one of the things that I'm that I'm thinking about is how we tend to get locked into a story. We we have an experience and we interpret it in a certain way, and we come up with our narrative about that. And then going forward, we only uh, integrate information that supports that story, and we can tend to shut out things that that fall outside of our preconceptions. You talked about the man with the fist, his mind was a fist, and how he recognized that he needed to open up and, and his own story needed to open up. And I'm curious how, when you're working in a situation, how you begin to help people open up their own understandings of what might be possible? Well, what you said about the narrative is a good is a good place to start, because I think encouraging people to look at that narrative and to find where there's some light that can get into the narrative is a very useful way of people beginning to get on this journey of change, because attachment to an old narrative keeps us stuck. And so I will ask people questions about what other story is possible here? What do you hear in the circle that can help you embroider and enlarge your own story, your own understanding about yourself and the circumstances? Because I always work in groups. I'm not working individually. So I'm working with a, with a community that is, that is inter, interrelated at all moments. And I'm wanting people to use the stories of, and perceptions of others to open up themselves. And people do. 
because you begin to hear things that are very different narratives from your own. And you wonder, well, how can these narratives coexist at the same moment? And in your work in various places, uh, what have you observed in terms of um, maybe dynamics or norms that make it more challenging for groups to move beyond their, their stuck places and their conflict? Well, I think one very difficult human behavior is denial. And for people who are coming into these workshops, these, these programs, who are on the side of the perpetrators, not that they were perpetrators themselves, but there was perpetration done by members of their community and perhaps of their family, for them to acknowledge what actually happens is very difficult because of the shame and humiliation of what their people, quote unquote, did to these other people who were sitting in the room with them. So one one very good story of this is Bosnia, where I was working with two city pairs, and um, they had been mixed um, ethnic and religious communities prior to the war. And then during the war, they became separated so that one community became entirely Muslim and the other community became entirely Serb, Christian Orthodox. The Muslims now call themselves Bosniaks. In those days, they called them, just called themselves Muslims. And the, the Serbs had been the perpetrators in that conflict, in that region of Bosnia. And there were three concentration camps in this city in which was one of the two city pairs that I was working. And I had actually been to see them. This is post-war, of course, but I had visited them. And in our circles, I spent six years working with Bosnians. And in our circles, for several years, the Bosnian Serbs refused to acknowledge the presence of those camps in their city. But I had Bosnian Muslims sitting in that circle who had been locked up in those camps. So that was a very crazy-making experience for the, for the Bosnian Muslims who had been there, who had the, the scars from, from those years in those camps. And I understood how long it took for the Serbs to be able to get over this humiliation enough to say, yes, this happened, and it happened in our city. And it happened in many cases with people that we knew. Who, who were violators there. But what a, what a hard thing that is to acknowledge. Absolutely. So after the, the 2016 election, you, you felt called, apparently, to turn some of your attention towards the U.S. because we find ourselves now in this polarized state. Absolutely. And so you're bringing, you're bringing your experience of peace building um, home, as it were. Mm-hmm. And you started the uh, the project Hands Across the Hills. Can you tell us about that project? Okay. Well, I co-started it with others, and it uh, was started in the little town I live in, which is Leverett, Massachusetts. It's just a little bit north of Amherst, Mass., which is better known. And right after the election, a group of us called a gathering in town. We asked people to just come to the library to talk about what people were feeling as a result of the election because our town was 85% voted for Hillary Clinton, so very small vote percentage for Trump. And 70 people showed up, which is a lot for a very tiny town. And we divided ourselves into committees, and one of the committees was called the Bridging Committee because we wanted to talk to Trump voters and find out why they had voted the way they had and how they were feeling about their votes. So I eventually became the chair of that committee, 
And we began searching for neighbors in our own town or close by towns who would want to partner with us for some dialogues, but we actually didn't find any interest. I think that the timing was very shortly after the election. And I think that people might have felt they were going to be scolded by us or um, be the butt of anger or anger. And so we didn't get any nibbles. So we also thought we better look further afield. And one of our colleagues found an article online written by a wonderful human being who's um, living in eastern Kentucky in coal country. He's not from that region. He's from Hartford, Connecticut, has a Ph.D. in cultural studies. Um, and he wrote about wanting dialogue. And so we began an email correspondence and then a phone correspondence and founded a partnership. And it was through that conduit that we developed this Hands Across the Hills project between our very progressive town and their county, which was about 85 or 90 percent for Trump. So it was the polar opposite. One of the lessons there is without a wonderful conduit like that, these kinds of exchanges can't happen because there has to be somebody in that community who has the credibility to bring a group together. And we, we wouldn't have that. We were strangers there. So a group uh, from your town went to Kentucky. Is that right? Well, it took, yes, it took us a year of preparation. Uh, we spent many months getting to know each other. They were suspicious, properly suspicious of us. What were we doing? What did we really want? And so it took a lot of trust building on Skype and phone calls and emails to just get to know each other a little bit and and uh, build interest in this. And my colleague, Ben Fink, the man who was from Connecticut but lives there, um, did a very good job in his community of bringing people in. And he had a group of people, not all were Trump voters, but almost the entire county was. So many of our people in that group were Trump voters also. And um, I worked with our group to form um, intimate bonds. We met frequently. We had a lot of organizing to do. I also did some basic dialogue training with our group and Ben did it with the Kentucky group so people would understand something of the framework. And we designed a three-day weekend because one cannot sit in a dialogue circle all day for three days. That's not humanly possible or productive. And I based it on the international work that I did where the dialogue was embedded in cultural exposure. We had art, music, dance, theater, sightseeing, potlucks, homestays, all the kinds of things that would truly expose our, our community to them and have them understand who we are. So last October, they came here. And then a few weeks ago, we went there. So we've had now an exchange both ways. And um, embedded in those days was daily dialogue for about three hours, but also all these other um, wonderful, joyful exploratory ways for us to get to know each other and see the reality of each other's lives, which in many ways are quite different. And what uh, what were some of the things that you and or your group took away from that experience? Well, the first one is that stereotypes are really a tragedy. And we all live in our heads with awful stereotypes about those people we don't know. And dismantling them was a major challenge. And as the stereotypes came down, the fact of each other's humanity came in to fill the empty spaces. And that was, that was such a joy because we met wonderful human beings. 
And we discover there's so much more to a human being than their voting record. And we really, we really came to care deeply about each other in ways that flabbergasted every single one of us. We didn't expect that kind of an outcome, but we went, we were, we were so deep and so tender and so honest in our explorations and our conversations and the dialogue that people just bonded at a, at a very intimate level. So are there, are there ways in which that project is going to continue or have you completed what you set out to, to do? Well, it's interesting, Patricia, when, when we went to Kentucky after the six months of their being here, we didn't know what to expect. We didn't know how we'd be received there. We didn't know how strong or not strong the bonds between our dialogue partners and us, us as a dialogue group would be. And we didn't know if there'd be a future. And what we discovered is that the bonds were still there in older glory. And we were able to start the first dialogue picking up where we had left off six months before. So we were not starting from the ground again. We were starting from a, a much more bonded, trusting place, and we're able to go more more deep in our conversations because we had had the, the three days before in the spring and all the subsequent six months online in between time. And by Sunday, it was totally clear to me that we couldn't say goodbye. It was unimaginable to us that that would be the case, but it was. And so Sunday night in our closing um, events, we sat in a circle and we brainstormed about 25 different things that we might do together. And then we got names attached to about 10 of them. So the other 15 fell away quite quickly. And about 10 of those, 10 projects got names attached to them of somebody on, on either side who would, uh, who would take responsibility for convening that group by email or by Skype. And some of those will also fall away, but some will remain. And so we are in connection with our friends there. And, and it's, it's wonderful. And my hope for this is that what we experienced will um, move gently and, and quickly into other communities that, that the Kentuckians who no longer see us as their stereotypes of Northeasterners um, Democrats, progressives, overeducated liberals, whoever they want to see us, because that shifted away from them and they see us in all our humanity. We hope that more people in their community will learn that from them. And certainly more people in our community have learned an enormous amount from us because we had a public event and 300 people showed up. We, ex we had set up 50 seats. We didn't know this was happening. But our, our, our region was so eager to meet these Kentuckians who they had been hearing about because of some local media, radio interviews and press, that they really wanted to meet them. And they came out in droves um, to do this and to spend an afternoon, actually a half, almost a day, um, in a school gym listening to our Kentuckians talk about their lives. And, and it was beautiful. It gave a great deal of hope to our community, which didn't have a lot of hope because of the political situation. And this was a very hopeful experience for everybody. So clearly a lot of people no longer hold stereotypes about coal country, Kentucky Republicans that they might've once held. They understand who these people are, their vulnerability, their fragility, the reasons for their voting, the reasons for their fragility, their hopes for the future, their challenges and so forth. And I believe that there was a video made of that gathering, is that right? 
there's a seven-minute trailer made of the first gathering, which is already on the Hands Across the Hills website. And there will be another trailer made of the second gathering in Kentucky. There are already probably 100 photographs of our time in Kentucky, which everybody can see on the website, as well as probably 10 or 12 different newspaper stories and podcasts and radio interviews that people can listen to. Um, And then our videographer hopes to make a full video, a full 20-minute or so video um, in the future. But that'll, that'll take some time. Yeah, that's great. And uh, there's a separate website for, for the project, if people want to find it? Yeah, handsacrossthehills.org, all one word. And we named it that because we live in the hills and so do they. And it's, it's kind of a positive image for what we were doing together. One of the things that we're talking about now with some of our Kentucky colleagues is uh, the possibility of doing another dialogue with a, a third region in the country and bringing all of us together, or some of all of us, some of each of us together. And we don't know if that's going to happen quite yet, but we have a couple of warm leads, and we'd like to see that um, in the future so that we expand our capacity to reach out to people from yet a different set of circumstances. So if if someone listening to this conversation that we're having, uh, I'm guessing that a lot of people listening to this will be will feel quite inspired by by what you're doing. And if somebody wanted to to start some sort of a dialogue experience in their community, partnering with some other community, how might they go about that? What what would you suggest, or or can they find materials on the Karuna Center uh, website? How would how should people proceed? They can find lots of materials on the Karuna Center website. There's a whole training manual that I wrote for international peace building, and one of the chapters in there is about dialogue. And there are lots and lots of handouts. This is available free, and people can download it, print out the handouts, and use it as a guideline. There are also materials on the Hands Across the Hills website. Some are same, some are different, but those are also available for people to to use freely as they wish. Um, They might look in their communities and see if they can find somebody who's had some dialogue facilitation experience or group leadership experience of one sort or another who might be a good person to lead the dialogue. Actually better to get two people, because it makes it a little bit easier, especially when you're starting out. And uh, then to bring together, it can be a small group, it can be you know, five or 10 people from each side is, is plenty, even five people from each side is a starting, and just to begin to have conversations together. And I always encourage people to set up some guidelines, which I do with every single session that I run in dialogue, Guidelines around communication skills. Uh, how do we talk to each other? What is respectful listening? What is the Buddhist call right speech, which is a wonderful phrase? What does it mean to speak carefully, to speak kindly, to speak um, respectfully to other people? How do we how do we listen fully to each other? Um, not interrupt, not make side conversations. Um, try to shift away from the judging mind. We also talk about confidentiality, which is really important. And we ask people to take their cell phones completely out of sight because that is a real dissuasion from from serious listening. So those kind of ground rules enable people to feel safe. And then when there are disruptions happen and people are behaving with perhaps a lot of anger or blame, I go back to the guidelines and we just review them again to try to keep respectful conversation going at all times. We've learned that anger and blame just lead to more of the same and don't really help us. 
um, people always want to know, well, did they change their minds? Would they not vote for Trump next time? There's always that in our community. Um, Why didn't you push them to change their minds? And why do they still feel the same way about abortion or immigration or guns or any of our issues? And I said, our purpose was not to push people. Our purpose was to listen, learn, and build community together. And then what people do with that is up to them. But if we push, we're going to get pushed back. It's, it's not a recipe for change. Right. That's not the purpose. The, the, That's right. The purpose That's is right. understanding, not That's right. change. That's right. right. The purpose is building trust. The purpose is shifting stereotypes. The purpose is, is knowing that there are other realities. And, and we heard stories of why people voted for Trump. We One story from one of the women there who were very, very close to, she said she had promised herself that whenever any woman ran for president on either party, she would vote for them because it was really time for a woman. But they were told that Hillary was going to shut down the mines and Trump said he was going to bring back coal. And she said in the end, this is her quote, I couldn't betray my community. And so I voted for Trump. And she did it with, with regret and hesitation, but her community was first. And we don't know stories like that. We don't know that people voted on one issue, which was coal, because for the past hundred years, it's been the only thing that's, as they say, put food on the table and, sh- and shoes on their babies. And that's why they voted that way. And we have to understand and not blame. Yes. Because getting back to the interdependency um there are such big systemic issues that we are all part of. Uh, That's right. That affect That's right. our lives. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we're always in our personal lives, in our political lives, we're always trying to get someone else to change. And we forget <laughs> that <laughs> the buck starts here. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. And really our job to change our ourselves own yeah. and open up our own minds and our own hearts. But, boy, when we did, people kept galloping in when you do that. They're ready, you know, so we did a lot of our own changing of minds and hearts. Well, Paula, I really want to thank you for this, for taking the time. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us before we we wrap things up? Yes, I would say that um, there's no place to go. We have to make friends with other people in our country. There's no third country we're going to move to. There's no there's no place that people can go after a war. The Israeli even the Israelis and Palestinians after all these decades, there's no place else they can go. They have to make it work there. We have to make it work here. We can't all move to Mars to form a new society. So <laughs> right, and, or, and I for Canada, as some people exactly. may think <laughs> it's very tempting. I'm not sure the Canadians want us anyway. At this point, they're, they're the ones who may end up building the wall. Right, exactly. So, so there is no place to go, and we 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 are responsible for what's happening in our own country, and we don't want to fight the civil war again. We really want to live with each other in peace, and that requires great effort and compassion on the part of every one of us. And recognizing that in you know there are people who are getting left behind in a global economy, and how how can we begin to address these systemic issues so that. So that there isn't this divide where some, you know, one group wins and the other group loses. That's right. And we need to put a human face on everyone. Yeah. And we, we don't have a very human face. The media is not helping us at all to have a human face. And you asked about Buddhism before, and maybe I can end with compassion, because compassion is such a wonderful value that, again, comes for me out of the Buddhist teaching. But that kind of empathy and, and generosity toward others is, is a way to open up our hearts to those in our country who voted differently, who live differently, 
and who also want the best future for the their children. Well, thank you again, Paula. And I want to encourage listeners to visit the org website where you can learn more about Paula's work and the work of the center and the handsacrossthehills.org website to learn more about this specific project in the U.S. So thank you, Paula, and to all of the listeners. Until next week, peace. Thank you, Patricia. Goodbye to all. 